You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Let me take the opportunity to welcome all of you uh, to the Carnegie Endowment. I'm Ashley Tellis. I'm a senior associate here at the Endowment focusing on South Asia and other issues of Asian security. Uh, the program that we have for you this afternoon is anchored in an event that is going to take place next week, which is the strategic dialogue uh, between the United States and India. Uh, it is a continuation of a process that has been going on uh, for two years now, and uh, it is the overarching conversation that takes place between both countries and which provides strategic direction uh, for engagement, not simply between the governments of the United States and India, but a range of other groups uh, which are both governmental and non-governmental. And so this is a very important moment of stock-taking uh, in the bilateral relationship. And there is no uh, better person to give us an account of where we stand today uh, than Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia, Bob Blake. Uh, his remarks this afternoon, which will be followed by a conversation that we will have with Diane Farrell and Alyssa Ayers, comes at a particularly opportune moment because there has been a certain anxiety about the state of the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, there is a body of opinion that believes that the relationship has perhaps not yielded as much as people expected it to yield. My own view is somewhat different from what the conventional wisdom suggests, because if one looks at the bilateral relationship uh, against a longer time horizon, where the relationship was, say, 12 years ago, compared to where we are today, I think the transformation has simply been breathtaking. If you look at the intensity of the engagement across a variety of issue areas, I think there has been simply no precedent uh, in the 60-odd years that the United States and India have had such a relationship. And so against that backdrop, I think there is a far more favorable account that can be provided of the state of progress, then sometimes uh, the collective wisdom in this city, which is often driven by the drifts of short-term considerations, might suggest. And to explore this, we'll do this in two parts. Uh, I've asked Secretary Blake to give us the keynote address this afternoon. It's a particular pleasure for me uh, to welcome Bob to the Carnegie Endowment again, because Bob and I had the pleasure of serving together in Delhi actually in the early years when we were putting the building blocks of this relationship together. Uh, Bob was the DCM uh, in the embassy, the deputy chief of mission. He came there uh, just about the time when I think Bob Blackwell and I were getting ready to leave Delhi to come back to Washington. And he stayed for another three years managing what was and what still is a very large and complex embassy. But Bob has had a great career in the Foreign Service, served in many posts in Africa, spent quite a bit of time in Main State Street, uh, C Street, uh, the Main State Building, and then left Delhi to go as our ambassador to Sri Lanka and the Maldives, which also turned out to be actually a tenure that was extremely significant because when Bob was uh, in Colombo, uh, we had to manage a very difficult transition involving the Sri Lankan Civil War. Uh, and so Bob has had a great and distinguished career, and after he finished with Sri Lanka, came to 
back to Maine State and has been the Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia, which is the position that gives you the God's eye view of what has happened in U.S.-India relations. And not just U.S.-India relations, of course, but the larger arena of South and Central Asia. So without further ado, let me welcome Bob Blake. And after Bob has agreed to take a few questions after he makes his presentation, and then we'll proceed to the second part of the program, and I'll come in and introduce the, uh, the two ladies that we have with us. Thank you. Welcome, Bob. Since Ashley's already given my speech for me, I don't think I really need to. We can just move straight to the Q's and A's. Uh. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here this afternoon with all of you and to be back here at Carnegie. And uh, I particularly want to thank my good friend, Ashley Tellis, who uh, was a great leader for all of us in Delhi in those early years and helping to really think through the strategic opportunities uh, that lay ahead for the United States and in India. And then ever since then has been uh, somebody really noted for his tireless scholarship and for his really terrific insights uh, into the U.S.-India relationship. And there's still no one who is more knowledgeable about uh, what's going on in the U.S.-India relationship than Ashley Tellis. So again, I really want to thank him. And what's really, I think, notable about Ashley is that um, his work is equally appreciated in Delhi and in Washington. And I think it's rare that you find that kind of consensus in either city where everybody tends to disagree on pretty much everything. So I think that's a real tribute to, um, to Ashley. And let me just say in advance that if I say anything clever at all, you should look very closely and watch because probably his lips will be moving. <laughs> so, uh, on a serious note, I am very honored to be here to, to address this collection of friends and colleagues. There are so many of you in the audience that I know so well and who I've, uh, from whose advice I've, I've benefited. Um, as Ashley said, we're now in our third iteration of the U.S.-India Strategic Dialogue, and it has grown from year to year. Uh, this next week we'll have uh, four full days of, of activities of one sort or another. In fact, many have already started this week, uh, and I think that in itself reflects the growth of, of our strategic partnership. And I really can't think of a better place than Carnegie, Carnegie to try to set the scene for this year's engagement and to attest why the growing strategic convergence between the United States and India is so important. Carnegie's strong focus on this relationship over the years has be, really been widely appreciated by both of our governments. Ashley asked me to provide today an overview of the U.S.-India strategic dialogue and really to present why it matters to the people of our two nations. And in particular, I want to try to refute what Ashley said, which is the recent narrative in some circles that somehow the U.S.-India relationship has been oversold. And if you believe that, you really haven't been paying attention to the great strides that we've been making over the past few years. Because I think this is a relationship that matters now more than ever. And both governments are powerfully committed to meeting the challenge of moving it forward. The U.S.-India partnership is really much more than a quest 
for the next big thing, or in government speak, the next big deliverable. We have proven year after year that our annual dialogue has produced a widening record of cooperation and dividends. And I think both of our governments now are trying to pursue a whole-of-government approach to address global challenges like energy security, poverty, prosperity, women's empowerment, health, and many, many other issues. And we also want to make sure that our, our work draws on and is informed by the work and the views of business people, of scientists, of experts like all of you, social entrepreneurs, and others. And I, indeed, the synergy of that very effort is one of the strengths of, of our relations. Our objectives are very, very simple. First, to try to leverage all aspects of bilateral cooperation to improve the lives of the nearly 1.6 billion people in both of our countries. Second, to try to push the envelope in the already thriving areas of cooperation like our S&T partnerships, defense trade, and to try to set some ambitious benchmarks for our trade and economic relationship, including progress on our bilateral investment treaty that I'll come back to. And third, to ask ourselves, what are we missing and how we can do more now? So those are the things that we'll be talking about over the next several days with our friends in the Indian government. Under the auspices of the strategic dialogue, our two governments will have substantive exchanges in more than 20 distinct policy areas this year. And at the heart of our bilateral relationship, as we always say, are our, our, our people-to-people links, the students, the businesses, the tourists, along with the three million strong Indian American community here in the United States. Minister Krishna, as many of you know, who is leading the Indian delegation, is a former Fulbright scholar who came from, uh, who studied at Southern Methodist University. So at the higher education dialogue this week, which will precede the strategic dialogue, we will celebrate the more than 100,000 Indian students who are studying here in the United States. And nearly 60% of those are studying engineering, math, and computer sciences, learning the skills that are going to drive the technological innovations of this next century. So today I will briefly set forth the case why our strategic ties, enhanced by our strategic dialogue, have resulted in greater convergence between our two great nations on the issues of our time, but also how our growing trade and our cooperation on innovation has benefited not only our people, but increasingly those of the wider world. What my boss, Deputy Secretary Bill Burns, said when he first previewed the strategic dialogue in 2010 still rings true. He said, never has there been a moment when India and America matter more to one another, and never has there been a moment when partnership between India and America mattered more to the rest of the globe. Any discussion of our strategic ties must begin with Afghanistan. The United States and India share a commitment to Afghanistan's stable and prosperous future, and each of us have signed recently strategic partnership agreements with the Afghan government. So what are our countries actually doing? The Indian government has committed more than $2 billion in assistance since 2001. It's helping to reconstruct Afghanistan's parliament building, equip the Indira Gandhi Children's Hospital, and train students 
as farmers, tailors, plumbers, carpenters, and welders. India also shares our objective to develop the Afghan economy and put it on a more sustainable, private sector-led footing to help reduce Afghanistan's reliance on aid. For example, it will invest billions of dollars over the next several years to develop Afghanistan's Hajigak iron ore deposit. And that's just the kind of sustainable investment that we're looking for from many countries around the world. India will host on June 28th a conference to examine ways to boost international private sector investment in Afghanistan. This conference will feature over 50 Afghan firms with at least 10 of the companies owned by women whose presence will spur direct business-to-business -business links between Afghanistan and international companies. It will inform a later July 8th government summit in Tokyo that will develop strategies for Afghanistan's development after 2014, and in a sense, a companion piece to the NATO summit that just took place in Chicago that looked at the security side of this. A crucial part of helping Afghanistan to develop an economy that is based on trade and the private sector will be to enhance regional economic integration. By embedding Afghanistan into the South and Central Asian region through a network of roads, railways, and energy infrastructure. Here too, India is playing a major role. India joined Pakistan and Afghanistan recently in signing gas sales purchase agreements with Turkmenistan, an important step in moving forward the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India gas pipeline. India will be the major regional market for the exports of Afghanistan going forward and it will continue to help grow Afghanistan's mining, health services, agriculture, and energy sectors. For centuries, the historic Grand Trunk Road connected the bazaars of Kabul with Punjab and Bengal. Now, from a northern distribution network that helps link the markets of northern Europe, Central Asia, to Mazari Sharif, to the critical links being established through the Afghanistan-Pakistan transit trade agreement, along with the promising trade normalization that is taking place between India and Pakistan, it is possible to envision new trade corridors linking the markets of Europe and China and India, with Afghanistan really one of the principal beneficiaries. This brings us to a new area of opportunity that is now under discussion between our two governments and others in the region. That is integration to India's east. India and Bangladesh have already made important progress to improve their relations, and we're all very encouraged by the progress that is occurring inside Burma. On her recent trip to Bangladesh and India, Secretary Clinton remarked on the opportunity before us. She said, India's look east policy will be essential for the growth of India but even more importantly, for the entire integration of the Asia-Pacific region. India is on the old Silk Road, Burma was on the old Silk Road, and Bangladesh was on the old Silk Road. And this is the kind of vision that I believe should occupy the minds of the leaders of the region right now, because we all have to lift our heads up, because a lot of the solutions lie outside with having greater peace, stability, and prosperity.
and India is taking the lead. Prime Minister Singh, in his visit to Burma in late May, placed great emphasis on the opportunities for connectivity. He said that Myanmar is a critical partner in India's Look East policy and is perfectly situated to play the role of an economic bridge between India, China, South, and Southeast Asia. The Prime Minister announced a series of measures to think through and act on these opportunities. As this example shows, India is not only looking east, but assuming a larger role in the broader Asia-Pacific. Both India and the United States recognize the international significance of the waterways that connect the Indian Ocean through the Pacific, through to the Pacific, the necessity of defending freedom of navigation, and the importance of cooperating on transnational issues that threaten the free flow of commerce, such as piracy, illegal trafficking, and terrorism. So we are very supportive of India's Lucky strategy. And we're working together in the East Asia Summit and the ASEAN Regional Forum to build a regional architecture that strengthens regional norms and objectives, upholds universal rights, and supports the peaceful settlements of disputes. We also agree that a zero-sum relationship with China will have negative results and will only dampen the opportunity for a stronger, more prosperous Asia. To this end, the United States and India have called for a new trilateral dialogue with China to increase our understanding and think through the opportunities for cooperation in areas of mutual interest. In sum, our strategic engagement with India has brought us into much closer convergence on a range of important issues to the United States. We will not always agree and India will maintain its strategic autonomy. But our broadening consultations, our common values, and the bipartisan support for expanding our relations suggest that we are likely to work ever more closely in the years to come. A second major focus of our dialogue is to enhance economic opportunity for our people. Our markets are increasingly integrated from the trading floors of New York and, and the Bombay Stock Exchanges to high-tech offices in Menlo Park and Hyderabad. We share an ongoing commitment to stimulate mutual economic growth, to strengthen global economic governance and multilateral financial institutions, and to work towards regional integration and prosperity. Bilateral trade in goods and services has increased almost five-fold in the last decade from 18 billion in 2001 to nearly 90 billion in 2011 and is on track to reach 20 billion by the end of this year. But there's more. Governments in market economies do not create or run businesses, but we can help create the environment that allows entrepreneurs to take smart risks that catalyze new business. Whether by strengthening investor protections providing export financing, or supporting investments in infrastructure and high technology, the U.S. government is helping American businesses realize the great potential of the U.S.-India economic relationship. Following the conclusion of the new U.S. model bilateral investment treaty in April, we have actively worked to advance negotiations on a U.S.-India bilateral investment treaty. We had productive negotiations in Delhi last, this week 
and will maintain an intensified schedule to work towards the conclusion of a bit, which we hope will accelerate investment flows in both directions, support new jobs, and generate growth. Foreign direct investment into India from the United States reached $27 billion in 2010. And in recent years, India has been among the fastest growing sources of inward investment into the United States, with a total of $3.3 billion in 2010, supporting thousands of new U.S. jobs. As the Indian economy continues to grow and to open, and as the global economy improves, we believe our bilateral trade investment levels will move ever higher. U.S. firms are well positioned to support India's economic expansion. Opportunities abound for U.S. firms in the Indian market. India plans to spend more than a trillion dollars on infrastructure in just the next five years. U.S.-India defense trade already has surpassed $9 billion in the last five years, as Secretary Panetta talked about during his recent visit to Delhi. And U.S. civil nuclear firms are poised to play a significant role in the $40 billion commercial nuclear sector as the Indian government seeks to add 14 or perhaps more new power reactors over the next several years. Our U.S.-India CEO Forum brings together key leaders of the U.S.-India and business communities to engage directly with senior government officials each year. And forum members this year are particularly focused on clean energy, infrastructure, biotechnology, e-health, and education, among several other areas. Joint efforts like these are hallmarks of the economic relationship and reflect the importance that both governments place on private sector advice. To back up the efforts of the State Department and the Commerce Department and the U.S. Trade Representative, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, the Export-Import Bank, and the U.S. Trade and Development Agency have all de dedicated substantial efforts to supporting business partnerships with India. USTA, USTDA excuse me, has expanded its infrastructure portfolio in India through its sig signature aviation and energy cooperation programs and new project initiatives related to emergency response, rail and ports sector modernization. OPIC is continuing to diversify its India portfolio in what has now become its largest portfolio in the, in the entire world. It recently approved a $250 million loan, for example, to the infrastructure development finance company to expand its lending in renewable energy and infrastructure projects. Likewise, the Export-Import Bank will soon have its largest portfolio in the world in India as the bank continues to expand its projects on aircraft, oil, gas, and renewable energy. These examples may not make the front pages of our major newspapers, but they are benefiting tens of millions of people every single day and creating thousands of new jobs. Third, let me turn to, our, to, to how our countries are using the power of science and technology to create new opportunities to address pressing global challenges. Both of our countries have world-class higher education institutions, market economies, thrive, thriving private sectors, rule of law, 
and venture capital that help ensure new innovation. It is no accident that businesses and entrepreneurs are deepening joint research and development and developing tomorrow's technology-based solutions. By encouraging greater investment between and among universities, government research labs, entrepreneurs, and businesses, we seek to help to accelerate the development of all of these great ideas and energy into broadly accessible technology solutions. While governments play a role in enabling joint science and technology activities, private sector, scientist to scientist, and institution to institution ties provide the foundation of cooperation between the United States and India. I'd like to highlight just a few examples of, that show the strong momentum in our innovation cooperation. First, the United States and India will hold their second joint commission meeting on science and technology cooperation in Washington tomorrow and Monday. This meeting provides strategic direction for bilateral S&T cooperation, including identifying new areas for such cooperation. Representatives from more than 15 U.S. government agencies and research institutions will meet with their Indian counterparts this year to expand cooperation in basic and applied sciences, health and medical sciences, and atmospheric, environment, and earth sciences. The Joint Committee meeting will feature thematic discussions on policy initiatives to strengthen bilateral research cooperation, to commercialize research, and to retain and advance women in science. Our two nations are particularly eager to share science and technology knowledge and experience to enhance research capacity and infrastructure. As a result of our first Joint Commission meeting in 2010, the U.S. National Science Foundation is assisting India's Department of Science and Technology to develop a National Science and Engineering Research Board, which will be modeled after our own National Science Foundation. A second major initiative is the Indo-U.S. Science and Technology Forum, along with the U.S. counterpart, the India-U.S. Science and Technology Partnership, the Technology Forum has facilitated the travel of more than 11,000 scientists between the United States and India, established 24 virtual joint research centers, and organized more than 30 training programs and 150 bilateral conferences, many of which have resulted in long-term partnerships. In May, while the Secretary was in Delhi, she and her uh, counterpart, the Indian Minister for Science and Technology, announced the first grantee award of the U.S. s and uh, Endowment Board. Grants of up to $500,000 are now being awarded for jointly developed technology solutions with the potential to improve health and empower citizens in both countries. The first round winner and winners and runners-up include a partnership to create a cold storage solution to keep farmers' produce fresh, a major challenge in India. In India, up to 40% of all the produce valued at $10 billion is lost to spoilage each year because of inadequate cold chain storage. So U.S.-based Promethean Power Systems and an Indian company called Icelings brought together technology and actually developed it jointly, that relies on what, what are called phase change materials. Now, don't ask me what those are. 
that are combined with solar-powered truck docking stations to create low-cost cooling systems for fruits and vegetables and seafood. It will help farmers across India to get a better price for their products by providing them with a much more cost-effective and reliable way to get their produce to market. And this is one of many examples of innovations that can also be scaled to the rest of the world, and I'll come back to that in a minute. A third new area of cooperation that will have wide benefits. In December, USAID Administrator Raj Shah visited India, and he, in, in cooperation with the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, FICI, and the Indian government, launched the Millennium Alliance, which is a public-private partnership to identify and develop new technologies and innovations targeted at the bottom of the development pyramid. Social entrepreneurs will compete for funds to develop innovative technologies to address development needs, and we in the alliance will scale these inventions to markets both in India and around the world to the benefit of the poor all over. In these and in so many other ways, transformative technology and transformative diplomacy are helping to respond to global challenges and shape our more positive global future. Ladies and gentlemen, there's so much more that we are doing that time constraints prevent me from mentioning. All of you are aware of the important strides that we are making to develop our counterterrorism cooperation to develop our defense cooperation, as Secretary Panetta recently highlighted on his trip. There is so much more to tell you about our energy partnership, and indeed we will have a session of the energy dialogue and put out a separate fact sheet about everything we are doing on the energy front. So let me conclude with a quote and a, and a prediction, mindful of the Yogi Berra admonition that it's tough making predictions, particularly about the future. <laughs> Secretary Clinton wrote more than two years ago that today's world is a crucible of challenges testing America's leadership. Global problems from violent extremism to worldwide recession to climate change to poverty demand collective solutions, even as power in the world becomes more diffuse. They require effective international cooperation, even as that becomes harder to achieve. And they cannot be solved unless a nation is willing to accept the responsibility of mobilizing action. The Secretary's words succinctly summarize why the U.S.-India partnership matters more than ever to us and to the world. As I've outlined today, two of the world's leading democracies, market economies, and net providers of security are working increasingly closely together. We are seizing strategic opportunities to promote integration between South and Central Asia, and we're looking to do the same to India's east and in the Asia Pacific. We are tapping the amazing talents of our people to generate innovation across a wide range of disciplines that is generating new jobs and new opportunities for our people and helping also to address many of the globe's biggest challenges. As two countries that are willing to take that responsibility that Secretary Clinton talked about, 
from mobilizing responses to the world's challenges, the U.S. and India are likely together to influence the course of this new century before us. So again, I want to thank uh, Carnegie so much for, for the time. As Ashley said, I'd be glad to take a few questions. If you'd be so kind, please save all the hard questions for Alyssa Ayers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, thank you. Secretary Blake has given us kindly 15 minutes of his time after the presentation. If you don't mind, Bob, can you, no, if you could actually just stand there sure, and course. take the questions. And since Bob has more experience than I do in dealing with press sprays, sure. I'll let you to make the calls. Since he's the only one that has camera, <laughs> but I talk to him all the time. My question is, sir, as you will be busy starting next week, of course, my question is that uh, India cannot do all this, what you said, Mr. Secretary, without energy. India has no energy today. And civil nuclear agreement between the two countries was signed four or five years ago. Indians are still waiting when U.S. will say, yes, here is the energy. And people to people, relations cannot go because... Uh, People don't trust today how much uh, we can go. And finally, what do you make, sir, during this uh, upcoming event, so next week, Senator's uh, events, and his remarks that the U.S. has now no patience as far as terrorism and the Afghani network in Pakistan? Thank you, sir. Well, on the first question regarding what the U.S. is doing to help India, India and its energy future, I think I talked a lot about that in my speech. Uh, and it's a, a, a multifold answer. Uh, first of all, um, I think probably the, the major new area of cooperation on the energy front has been uh, on the clean energy side. And we've seen a dramatic increase in um, the emphasis not only in our strategic dialogue, but also in terms of interest on the part of the private sector to develop clean energy opportunities in India. And so I think that's really what has driven the huge growth in OPIC and XM lending that I talked about earlier. And I think we'll, we'll continue to see that develop for the foreseeable future. So we're, we're very excited about those opportunities and want to do everything we can, not only because it supports our companies, but also it's good for India's own energy needs. And, of course, it's good for the, uh, for the planet in terms of climate change to support these, this kind of energy development. Secondly, we've been very engaged with India in, in uh, helping to uh, – explore opportunities for shale gas, which has made such a difference to our own energy future. Uh, and I think there are some opportunities in India. And again, I think the U.S. Geological Survey and others are, are uh, again, closely working with their Indian counterparts on that. And third, of course, we've been very involved in, in the whole civil nuclear um, agenda. And as is well known, uh, there are still concerns on the part of our companies about the liability uh, legislation as it now stands. Uh, we're working through those concerns with our, our friends in the Indian government and with, with our companies. But um, in the meantime, we're looking to try to uh, conclude um, what are known as early works agreements that will show uh, the continued interest of our companies in uh, the business opportunities in, in this sector in India, but also show provide an important signal from India as well, that India is interested in seeing uh, these agreements move forward. Uh, so 
uh, I think we'll have more to say about this in the course of the strategic dialogue. But um, overall, we're very committed to helping. And I should also just mention the, the TAPI pipeline, which I, which I talked about earlier, which will be an important new source of gas. Uh, of course, the Turkmenistan is looking to diversify its own uh, gas pipelines. Uh, and so it's a very welcome new market for, for the Turkmen. But this will be not only an important new energy source for India, but will provide important transit revenues for both Afghanistan and Pakistan. So from many different perspectives, this is a win-win situation and, some, and a project that is strongly encouraged by the United States. Sorry, on the Haqqani network, I don't really have anything to add beyond what Secretary Panetta has already said. I think he's been quite clear about our position. <laughs> Thank you. Tazy. Tazy Schaefer from Brookings. Tazy. I'm sorry. Tazy Schaefer from Brookings. I wonder, Bob, if you could say something about two issues on the uh, political and security side about the U.S.-India dialogue on sure. East Asia, and on the economic side about what we can expect on some of the hardy perennials on the U.S.-India um, to-do list, issues like uh, uh, insurance, um, intellectual property, uh, and um, other trade issues that have been around for a long time. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, on East Asia, um, as, as the Secretary first previewed in, our, in her speech in Chennai last year, um, this is going to be a, a, a major new area of strategic engagement for the United States. Uh, and we have a, a very strong interest in seeing India more integrated into the uh, various institutions of, uh, the, East Asia, uh, of the Asia Pacific, uh, including particularly the East Asia Summit, but also others as well. And so um, we're, we're working very closely on that. It's no accident that um, I think probably our most successful bilateral dialogue that we have uh, in terms of regional consultations is that on the Asia-Pacific, conducted by my good friend Kurt Campbell, who's the assistant secretary for, for that region. Uh, and we've had really an intense and very productive uh, talks that take place twice a year uh, that carry on usually for one day, sometimes two. Uh, and we decided to complement that by beginning a, a dialogue, a trilateral dialogue uh, that took place for the first time earlier this year with Japan, so U.S.-India-Japan. And again, I think we all see tremendous opportunities to do more together in areas like maritime security, promoting freedom of navigation, uh, and many of the other issues that I mentioned in my speech. So we want to, again... Uh, these dialogues, we, we talk for eight hours and we only barely scratch the surface. So I think we're going to try to drill down on some of these now and really look for concrete ways that we can begin to really cooperate together. But we also are very conscious that we don't want to in any way uh, have China get the wrong impression about what we're doing. These are not consultations aimed at trying to contain China. On the contrary, these are consultations aimed at trying to uh, collectively seize opportunities that we see in the Asia-Pacific. We all want to engage China, and that's why we and the Indians have reached out uh, to try to talk to the, uh, to the Chinese about those opportunities. We hope they'll, they'll accept that. As I've said before, I have very productive discussions of my own. We have a South Asia dialogue with China as well as a Central Asia dialogue with China, and those have been going on now for three years and have been highly, highly productive, and so we want to continue that. So 
the short answer to your question is there's a lot, uh, we're, a lot we're doing, but a lot more that we can still do. And so we're anxious to, to get on with real business. Um, on, the, on the economic side, um, you know, it's no accident there, uh, no, uh, no secret that there are some challenges now uh, in India in terms of moving forward with the economic reform program. Prime Minister Singh announced some, some new uh, initiatives today to continue to try to develop the infrastructure and develop new opportunities, not only for investment, but also for jobs for Indians. Um, those are certainly welcome. Um, but we will continue to, to uh, encourage uh, that the progress of, of, econ of India's economic reform effort, not only because that will benefit India's own citizens, but also because it will provide immense new opportunities for our own companies who are very interested to do more business in India. Uh, as with any government, um, whatever is done has to have this uh, domestic political support. And so we leave that to our Indian friends to, to manage that. And I think that's uh, one of the big challenges now ahead for them. Um, so, but in the meantime, we, of course, we will continue, Taisi, to engage on all of the issues that you mentioned uh, and through our wide range of economic dialogues that we have on, the, on these subjects. But um, even as we talk about these things, we're, we are encouraged by the very positive trends that I talked about earlier, which of, of the very fast-growing um, trade and investment in both directions between our two countries. Yes, ma'am, back there. I think you had your hand raised. Karen Walker with University of Maryland. I was wondering if you could also address the democracy and governance, rule of law, human rights, if that's a part of the dialogue. and appreciate your perspective on that. Um, if you're talking about dialogue inside India, no, we don't really have a dialogue on that. We talk about – right. No, I understand. We're, we are increasingly now talking with our friends in the Indian government about ways that we can work to promote democracy – Transparency. Many of you saw that we had a, had an open government launch uh, about two months ago with Sam Petroda. Uh, we want to try to expand that now to uh, to bring in more countries into the open government platform initiative, and I think we'll ha hopefully have more to say about that in the next few days. But we're also working very closely with India with its election commission uh, through the International Foundation for uh, Electoral Systems (IFES). I think that's how. Um, to, again, look for ways to, that we and India can help to promote democracy, to help promote transparency, help to promote, uh, you know, thing, best practices such as India's electronic voting machines in other countries. So we think there's quite a lot of space for, 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 to expand this area of cooperation, and we're delighted that, that India is, um, you know, wants to work with us on this because – Frankly, India is going to be much more credible, and India's own experience is going to be much more credible in many of these developing countries than our own. And so uh, it's vital to have them as a partner. Yes, sir. Thank you, Pastor. Nice to meet you here. You mentioned now your U.S. approval a trilateral dialogue between U.S., India, and China. <clears throat> and now, <clears throat> what's the issues maybe <clears throat> focus on this proposal? And to know what's the response from by China and uh, India? What's the purpose for them? For uh, this is for the current uh, issues of just for future. 
Well, the purpose of the dialogue is first to share our perspectives on 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 the important issues that we face, and in all of these dialogues, we negotiate in advance what the agenda will be, uh, and then eventually we hope to talk about ways that we can actually cooperate together, and not simply talk about and and you know try to ensure that our views converge on on whatever the issue might be. I think there are important opportunities where all of us could could work together. I would I'd, I would say Afghanistan is a very good one, where um, this was uh, a prominent subject in the recent uh, SCO conference that just took place today. Uh, Afghanistan has been admitted as an observer state in the Shang in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I think all of the SCO members are interested in helping to support the transition that's taking place in Afghanistan. So this would be a very a very good area for us to, to begin our discussions. But I think there are a wide range of other things that we can do because we do have many, many common interests. And again, we want to, as much as possible, show and demonstrate to the Chinese we want to work with them and, and try to seize opportunities to cooperate more and, and again, coordinate our policies if that's possible. Over here, Wolf. Uh, Wolf Gross, Northrop Grumman. Uh, speaking of Afghanistan, uh, some of my uh, glass half empty friends in, in India have said uh, the Afghan exhortations uh, are focused on leaving us holding the bag when you leave in 2014. Uh, and I'm getting this increasingly. What are we doing to allay that concern? Well, I, I don't think you'll hear any Indian government officials saying that. I mean, well, not the ones we talk to. and They're pretty senior, like the prime minister. Uh, I, I think that the Indians are, are increasingly reassured uh, by, for example, the strategic partnership agreement that we signed, by the fact that we do have an enduring commitment to Afghanistan um, beyond 2014. Uh, the focus will be on the economic side, but of course – uh, we want to be sure that uh, the ANSF, the Afghan National Security Forces, are trained up so that they can take on the challenges. I think that there will be some sort of residual U.S. force that will remain in Afghanistan post-2014, primarily in a training role, but that is to be negotiated under a uh, – we'll, we'll negotiate a bilateral security agreement with the government of Afghanistan probably over the next year or so. Uh, so the exact parameters of that will be, will be uh, determined there. But I think the overall message that the NATO summit conveyed to not only to Afghanistan but also to our friends in the region is of our enduring commitment to Afghanistan, again, both on the security side but also on uh, the uh, economic side. And that's why this conference in Afghanistan that's in, in Tokyo that's coming up on July 8th is also so important because it's kind of the bookend to the NATO summit. Uh, and so um, – you know, this is this is a subject that's not just of interest to India. I work very closely with all the Central Asians who have been supporting the Northern Distribution Network, and I think they too have been reassured by uh, by what they saw and what they heard when they went to the NATO summit, uh, and uh, as a result, have been um, more active in developing a lot of these uh, regional integration networks that I talked about because they they do believe that there there's a promising future, and, that, and therefore they're willing to put their own money into developing these raid and railroad and other assets and 
that's an important signal of confidence, I think. If they, if they believed that, that, that Afghanistan was going to fall to the Taliban in 2014 or 2015, they wouldn't be doing that. So, uh, so we'll continue to be very involved, and most importantly, we'll continue to consult very closely with friends like India and the Central Asians to share our perspectives and to make sure that primarily that uh, the Afghan National Security Forces are trained and equipped to take on this challenge uh, that they will have. And I think, as you've heard General Allen and Secretary Panetta and many others say many times, that the process of transition is already well underway uh, and is proceeding well. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we're going to stick to this. And, uh, um, again, I think that the trend lines are good. Sorry, let me take some questions over here. I haven't. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, Ambassador. My name is Damien Tompkins, East-West Center. Um, I hope this question isn't too old, but I'm just wondering if the Indians have ever discussed um, why they, they abstained at the um, United Nations Security Council vote last year regarding um, no-fly zone over Libya, and linking that to global governance issues. That's, that's what I'm, I'm looking at, what, what kind of message that sends. And I know Germany also abstained, and I think they regretted it, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. You're, you're asking me to go back into the mists of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather focus on more of the current things. And I would just say that um, we have seen, um, I, think, I think, very good cooperation with India and very good consultations with India in the UN framework uh, in recent days. I would point to uh, the very good talks that we had uh, before the Sri Lanka resolution in the UN Human Rights Council, where... We were very pleased that India was one of the countries that voted yes for that resolution. And India's yes vote, I think, was a very important part of bringing along other countries to ensure that there was majority support for that resolution. But India more recently has voted in favor of a Syrian resolution that we supported. They voted in favor of a Sudan resolution that we supported. So I think, uh, again, I think there's, there's been good, good consultations and, and, and quite good convergence on many of these important issues. And uh, that's obviously encouraging. Yes, ma'am. My name is Liliana Rodriguez, and you former student, sir. Could you give me an idea about what is the, the position of the United States concerning Kashmir Valley? Concerning? Kashmir. Oh, Kashmir. Um, our position is that this is something that needs to be negotiated by India and Pakistan and that the pace and scope and character of that negotiation is really up to them. Um, we have supported very strongly the progress that India and Pakistan are making in their, in their bilateral talks, particularly on the trade front, which we think has been quite important and quite impressive. Um, as you know, they, they've agreed now to – Pakistan has agreed to normalize relations, trade relations with, uh, with India. And uh, so we're, you know, doing everything we can to encourage continued progress in this – this area of, of cooperation, not only because it will benefit the people of India and Pakistan and serve to build confidence between these uh, two countries, but also because it will have, make such a difference for the wider strategic interest that we have in regional integration. If India and Pakistan can progress far enough in their trade relations, uh, it might be possible to envision a transit trade agreement between India and Pakistan, such as the one that Pakistan has with Afghanistan and the one that the ones that Afghanistan is developing with its Central Asian neighborhoods. And then at that point, you can begin to think about that, that vision that I talked about in my speech, where 
trade from Northern Europe and from China can come down through Central Asia and Afghanistan and Pakistan to India and the markets of Southeast Asia, uh, significantly cutting shipping times and, uh, again, dramatically improving economic opportunity for the citizens of the region. So uh, this is both a, a bilateral but also a quite significant uh, regional uh, opportunity. Bob, do you have a handwritten question for you? Do you want to take it? Now I have to put on my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> it's the individual is written that. Oh, it's from in the next room. So this is somebody from Wellesley College. USA supports India's Look East policy. Any concrete plan in the region? How can the U.S. and India work together to be sure not to touch China's nerve? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I and I think Prime Minister Singh um, addressed this when he went to, to uh, Myanmar. He, he he was asked this question about China, and he I think he was very forthright in saying that um, all the countries of the region need to work with China, and that China itself can be a beneficiary of this of this opening. And that, indeed, a lot of the trade coming down from China, from Chongqing and places like that, uh, can, can really help to um, drive a lot of this, this integration process forward. So, again, I think we in the United States would very much like to work with China and, and bring them into this process. Again, this is at a very early stage here. At this point, really, the Indians are just thinking through now what are the opportunities to develop rail connectivity, what kind of freight could be shipped from um, from India from and across which route? Should it go across Bangladesh? Should it go through the five northeastern states? And so they're thinking now through very, I think, uh, creatively how to, how to do that and, and, again, working closely with friends both in Bangladesh and Burma. And um, so the United States very strongly supports that. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, again, look forward to supporting that in any way we can. Secretary Clinton was, was quite... Um, enthusiastic in, in, in talking about these opportunities on her recent trip to both to uh, Bangladesh and India. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Hi. I won't forget you. Go ahead. Seema Sirohi, firstpost.com and Gateway House. Uh, Master Blake, I was wondering if you could address uh, this whole question of uh, turning political de declarations about having a stable order in Asia into some concrete ideas. And um, some strategic analysts in India have been asking that. How, how do we move from here to the next step? And a second question about uh, defense collaboration and co-production of weapons. Is there any talk about that in the short-term future? Thanks. Um, on the um, Asia, you know, first of all, I think w one of the notable things about Asia is that there's already a very well-developed uh, institutional architecture. So as I said earlier, our interest is in trying to integrate India into that institutional and security architecture uh, to the extent that India wants and to the extent that it, they believe it serves their interests. So. Again, we're talking uh, with them about, about all of those issues. But in terms of other ways that we can sort of concretely work together, um, well, again, we've been talking about opportunities to, uh, to ensure maritime security. Some of the um, – some of, a very large proportion of the world's trade passes through um, 
the, the waters of Southeast Asia. Uh, so that's obviously a, a vital interest of all of ours. Um, we want to continue to expand uh, multilateral exercise opportunities, and so we'll look to do that. Um, but again, this is something that, that uh, has got to be driven also by India's own interests and, and what where it sees opportunities and where it own, its own capabilities will permit. So again, I think there's a lot of, uh, of good conversations going on about these things, and these are things that will take time. I don't want to imply that we're going to announce an agreement tomorrow. These are things that, that will take time, but again, are deeply in all, all of our own interests. And our long-term strategic interest is, again, to integrate India more into these Asia-Pacific institutions, and I think we're making good progress on that. On the defense side, um, you've heard us talk many times about the, the good progress that we've made so far uh, in terms of defense sales that uh, have now touched $9 billion, um, primarily in, in, in C-130s, C-17s, and, and uh, uh, equipment like that. We'd like to take that to the next level now. We'd like to talk about co-production, co-development, and, again, I think our own uh, system of export controls and our own system of licensing is becoming more and more open to the idea of working ever more closely with India. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to certainly look for every opportunity that we can to develop this idea and to, uh, to again, to seize that opportunity to move to the next level. So um, I don't have anything to announce today, but uh, you can be sure we're working hard on this. Sir. Chidaraj Gatta from the Times of India. Hi. Uh, Ambassador, do you see the same level of energy and enthusiasm in New Delhi for the kind of partnership uh, that the United States uh, has in mind? And are the two countries really on the same page uh, about this vision? And I asked this in the context of Secretary Panetta's visit yesterday, and some of the reports suggesting that uh, they're really not on the same page in terms of uh, the vision in the long term. Well, I don't think you heard Secretary Panetta say that. I mean, uh, that might have been some uh, unnamed background official or something like that. Uh, on the contrary, I think Secretary Panetta was very pleased with his visit and uh, very, very encouraged by what he sees as opportunities to work more closely with India. So to answer your question, obviously you have to ask that of, of, of our friends in India. I'm not going to really speak for them. But um, from our own discussions, I think that there is uh, a, a great deal of and if you read Ambassador Rao's speeches and uh, Foreign Secretary Matai gave a speech not too long ago here, uh, they, they'll be very similar to what I just said. And so, again, India is going to maintain its own strategic autonomy, uh, and that's exactly as it should be. And we, we will maintain our own as well. But we do see uh, opportunities to work ever more closely together across, across a wide range of areas. And I think I outlined some of those. And... Um, we are, the proof is in the pudding. We are, in fact, putting those into place now, and we really are working more closely on these areas. And uh, I think you'll see more of that in the years ahead. I'll, I have time for one more question, and then I'm afraid I have to run. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Kerry uh, Byron with Interpress. I was just wondering if you could very briefly characterize Iran in the bilateral sure. relationship right now and whether you expect that to uh, play a part in the official talks next week. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this was something that Secretary Clinton talked a lot about 
um, in her talks in Delhi when she was there uh, in early May. And I think um, she came away uh, quite encouraged by, by the progress that you've seen. And if you, if you see, if you read what Foreign Minister Krishna, External Affairs Minister Krishna said uh, in his joint press conference, and if you read what the Secretary said, uh, they're, they're virtually identical. Both of them talked about the need to uh, encourage Iran to come to the negotiating table with the P5 plus one and to negotiate in good faith and to negotiate seriously. Both countries talked about how we do not have an interest in seeing another nuclear weapons state in the region but that Iran should have access to civil nuclear energy, provided it's willing to be transparent and, and obey uh, all of the accepted rules. And both countries talked about how it's important to, um, to uh, observe the market signals, and the markets are saying that uh, it's, it's time to diversify uh, and not simply rely on, on Iranian oil. So India talked about how, for its own reasons, it is – taking steps now to reduce its reliance on, on Iranian oil and sourcing more from other countries, and it's certainly a, a very welcome development. Uh, so I think uh, that we've made some, some good progress in our, in our conversations about this. We certainly understand that India has important interests in, in Iran. For one thing, if it wants to continue all the important things that it's doing in Afghanistan, it must have access to Iranian ports to get its equipment and other supplies into Afghanistan because they cannot do, do so directly overland through Pakistan. So we certainly understand uh, uh, important interests like that. But again, I think we, we, we are encouraged by the progress that we've seen. Um, I don't want to get into, you know, the, the waiver process. Um, that we'll, we'll just have to see how that plays out. But um, uh, again, I think we, we had some very good conversations in, uh, in New Delhi on this subject. So again, I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, – run now, but uh, I'll leave it to my far better informed colleagues who can uh, talk more here. So. Well, I want to take the opportunity to thank you, Bob, for spending the time with us, but more importantly for a very candid and transparent uh, conversation about the dimensions of the U.S.-India relationship that now take place outside the glare of publicity. And in many ways, I think that's the best thing that's happened, uh, that you don't have to be sidetracked by the glitz, but we get down to the business of now making the lives of our respective populations better right. because of the things that we do together. Right. And I think what you laid out today and what you didn't say and probably would have said if you had the time really encompasses such a range of activities uh, that it really opens the opportunity for ordinary Indians and ordinary Americans to profit from this partnership. So let me thank you once again for coming here, and I want to wish you and thank you particularly for all the work that you've done in sustaining this relationship despite all the distractions <laughs> otherwise occupied. Okay. Well, thank, thank you all. You. Nice to thank see you. you. Well, I want to move to the second part of the event that we had planned for this afternoon, which is a panel discussion uh, with two very accomplished individuals who have spent a good bit of their careers on implementing the U.S.-India partnership. Uh, Max Weber once said 
that politics is the art of the slow boring of hard boards. And I think that's a very good description uh, for what putting the pieces together of the U.S.-India partnership entails. It's a lot of hard work. It has to be done outside the glare of publicity. And it requires concentrated attention. And the two individuals we have today on the podium with us are individuals who have both spent a good bit of their careers really working U.S.-India issues. And I want to briefly introduce both of them. They also, in the interests of truth and advertising, I must confess, they're also my personal friends. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's doubly a pleasure to do so. Let me start with Alyssa Ayers at the far right, who is now Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, in the South and Central Asia Bureau, uh, working India issues pretty much full-time although her portfolio covers many of the other countries as well, like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and the Maldives. Uh, Alyssa has been at the department since 2010, but in actuality, everything that she has done over her professional career has really involved uh, South Asia, uh, beginning with work in graduate school and a very important episode in a professional career which hasn't received much attention is the work that she actually did on the Civil Nuclear Cooperation Initiative uh, when she worked for Undersecretary Burns uh, on the Undersecretary staff before she came to the department in her current position. So Alyssa has been at this for quite some time, and it's a special pleasure to welcome Alyssa to the, to the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, I also want to welcome Diane Farrell, who today is with the U.S.-India Business Council. Uh, much of the attention in the bilateral relationship has focused on what governments do, particularly the governments of the United States and India. And as Bob Blake said, governments are important because they set frameworks within which a variety of other activities take place. But what drives the partnership is not simply what governments do, but the actual activities that are transacted between the two countries and between the two societies. And Diane has played a critical role in terms of forging the economic and commercial relationships uh, that will underpin this partnership as it goes forward. Before Diane came to USIBC, she also had a previous career which involved India. Uh, she was in the board of directors of the Exim Bank, which, as you know, is one of the critical institutions that supports U.S. export activity uh, to different parts of the world. And when Diane was at Exim, in fact, uh, Exim's activity relating to commercial activities in India jumped manifold. In fact, I think India became the second uh, largest uh, country of partnership for Exim Bank. Uh, so we have two very distinguished individuals here. What I propose we do is I would like Alyssa to start just drilling down a little bit, giving us an overview of the multiple dimensions of the engagement as you see it from your vantage point. And then I'll ask Diane to follow, talking about the commercial aspects of the relationship to include all of trade and economics, because that provides the ballast. Mm -hmm. We originally intended to have a third uh, uh, individual who would speak to us today, and I'd asked uh, Vikram Singh, who is the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense, to come this afternoon. And he had accepted, except that he is right now on a plane with Secretary Panetta coming back. 
And so that's the reason why we don't have Vikram this afternoon. But what I propose to do, unbeknownst to him, is to say a few words on the defense and strategic relationship, because I think that's an important component, which will provide the complementarity to what Alyssa and Dan have to say. Over to you, Alyssa. Thank you. Ashley, thanks for inviting me here. Um, I think we're probably going to find that all of us are in violent agreement about many dimensions of the U.S.-India relationship. Um, Ashley asked me to spend some time drilling down in a bit more detail some of the elements that Assistant Secretary Blake spoke of in his speech, and so I'm happy to do that. Um, and I certainly wanted to say that I agreed with your opening comments, that I think that what we're looking at in terms of the transformation of the U.S.-India relationship over the longer-term view, if you look at the, the decade-long transformation, the last 10 years, the last 20 years, it's really been a quite dramatic transformation. And that's going to be um, the crux of what you'll hear most of us at the State Department trying to get out more in our messaging, because there is a huge amount of engagement that's taking place now. Uh, we no longer have one idea that we're working together with our colleagues in India, or even just a couple, but it's a, an enormous range of activities. In fact, it's part of the reason that preparing for the strategic dialogue next week is becoming so challenging, because we all feel like we have 4,000 different plates that we're trying to keep spinning in the air all at once. And um, it's very satisfying and rewarding, and it also uh, just uh, reinforces for all of us how new and different the relationship is from what it was, let's say, during the period of estrangement that Dennis Cooks has written about um, so eloquently. So let me just note here, um, you heard, of course, earlier from Bob uh, the, the wider range of issues that we're talking about. He flagged for you the kind of strategic areas, the S&T innovation areas. Um, I'm going to talk about all of those in a little bit more detail, and I also want to make sure that, that you're all uh, aware of what we're trying to do on the people-to-people -people side specifically, because those level, the contacts between the peoples of both countries are really what continue to underpin the relationship. I'm sure Diane and, and Ashley will be reinforcing that as well. Um, the level of attention uh, that India is receiving in the United States uh, compared to previous years is quite substantial. Um, here's one statistic for you to take home today. We are uh, in the first week of June, and we've already had four cabinet-level visits to India so far this year. Secretary Clinton, Secretary of Commerce Bryson, um, Secretary of Health and Human Services Sibelius, and Secretary of Defense Panetta. Uh, by the end of June, we will add a fifth, uh, Secretary Geithner traveling to India. So that's halfway through 2012, and we're already looking at five cabinet-level visits. That's pretty substantial. Um, Assistant Secretary Blake also noted that our ties increasingly encompass broad strategic engagements, this growing trade and economic relationship. Of course, Diane is going to discuss that uh, from the commercial perspective a little bit more. But uh, one of the things that we like to do is sort of take that longer-term view on what we're doing on all the, this um, area of engagement. And a lot of what is now taking place is uh, what is so new and different and exciting is what we're doing together on innovation partnerships. Um, this isn't, you know, there was a question earlier for Bob uh, about what we're doing tangibly, and it's actually in this space, it's in the innovation space, that, that what we're doing together now with India is accomplishing tangible results. So I will be talking a little bit more about that together um, in the S&T space. Um, I also do want to reinforce what Bob said in the lead-off of his remarks, because I want to make sure that, that everybody here has our sort of three takeaways of what we're trying to do and accomplish in our relationship 
with, with India. And we really do, I, I, I want to give you those three points again. We're trying to leverage all aspects of the bilateral cooperation we have with India to improve the lives of all people in both of our countries. And that's a really significant kind of a goal. Um, two, we are trying to advance what we are doing in already thriving areas of cooperation. Again, as Bob spoke of in science and technology and defense trade, but also to try to be ambitious and think about what we can do in the years ahead in areas like how, how we can continue growing our trade and investment, setting the benchmark even higher so we can keep our sights um, on, on the distance and set a path to that. So Bob mentioned, of course, bilateral investment treaty progress. Um, we are hoping to continue intensified talks uh, on a bit as a way of thinking more about how we can uh, continue to increase our trade and investment relationship. And finally, as, as Bob said, um, and here's something that we ask ourselves every day, at least from where I sit now, uh, we try to ask ourselves, what are we missing in the relationship? What more could we be doing? And how can we do more together now? Um, so with that, I did want to now go through and outline in a little bit of detail um, some of what we're doing in the strategic space, so our regional issues, areas of consultation, defense cooperation, homeland security cooperation, which Bob didn't have an opportunity to speak about at length. I'll mention that a little bit. Um, and some of what we're doing together in global challenges. I'll also briefly touch on um, economics and trade, uh, our economic statecraft agenda, which has become an important focus for the State Department. Um, I mentioned the bilateral investment treaty, uh, the increased FDI taking place on both sides. Bob mentioned the CEO Forum. Uh, India is a focus country for the United States National Export Initiative, so it's quite a significant focus of what we're trying to do. Um, and the excellent work that's happening in the clean energy space through our financing agencies, OPIC, Exim Bank, and TDA. Um, and then finally, the third area, as Bob uh, spoke of, science and technology, the, the sort of knowledge and innovation partnership that we are really developing together uh, with India. Um, okay, first of all, why don't I just start and give you a little bit more detail on the strategic space, if that's okay? Is that, does that make sense? All right. Um, as Bob mentioned, we are now consulting together on a range of issues far more than ever in the past, and certainly from the, my perspective, having seen the relationship on the outside for many years as a, you know, a scholar and in a think tank, and uh, then having the opportunity to work in government on a signature initiative, but it was you know one initiative that sort of took up all the air in the room, as people used to say. Um, um, to what we're doing now, it's actually a very different kind of environment. Um, on the diplomatic consultation side, as Bob mentioned, we're talking about every area of the world. Um, you know, the East Asia consultations have become some of our deepest and most engaged. Uh, they meet on a regular basis. Bob mentioned the uh, trilateral. Uh, we have consultations on the Near East, which India calls West Asia. Um, we've had consultations on Central Asia, which, of course, Bob leads. We are now talking together in very frank and open ways about Afghanistan and what we can both do together there. We're also talking together about the region, Burma, recent events in Burma. We had very intensive consultations on Sri Lanka, as Bob referenced in the run-up to the UN Human Rights Council vote, and we'll continue to have uh, those very intensive talks um, about you know, a, a country that everybody wants to see move in the right direction. Um, energy security, I should note, is another area that we're talking about. Um, we were not talking about energy security as a sort of consultative area of focus in the past, and we're doing that now. Peacekeeping, nonproliferation, multilateral affairs, we have sort of regular engagement on all these areas of conversation, and I think Ashley can probably attest it was not this way in 2001 and 2002. Uh, so that's quite a big transformation. Um, I want to mention the Homeland Security Dialogue. This is a, a new cabinet-level 
engagement, which was launched last year by our Secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, and um, her counterpart in India, the Home Minister, Mr. Chidambaram. Um, the Homeland Security Dialogue is not just a cabinet-level consultation once a year, but it's actually a pretty intensive um, organizing structure for a series of working groups that continue to talk during the course of the year at technical levels about things like port security, supply chain infrastructure, thinking about technology in the homeland security space. Uh, so this is a really new and quite important area uh, of engagement for both of us. Um, Bob did mention also uh, on the defense cooperation side, again, it, you know, we've seen the, the sales space continue to expand. Bob mentioned that we have just exceeded $9 billion in the last five years. This is supporting tens, tens of thousands of U.S. jobs, important to keep in mind. Um, one thing that I would like to, and this is something I, I try to always emphasize, because it's, it's one thing to talk about sales and numbers, but it's another thing to also talk about the impact of those sales and what they mean. We talk a lot about increased interoperability, and that's certainly the case. Um, the C-17s acquisition that India has made uh, from the United States has now given India the largest C-17 transport fleet in the world apart from the United States, so the second largest transport fleet in the world. What does that mean, a transport fleet? It means that India can be a first responder to humanitarian emergencies in the region. It gives India capabilities that it didn't have before, uh, and it will allow India to take on a, a very different kind of regional leadership role um, in providing what scholars would refer to as you know, uh, collective goods, collective action kinds of questions. And this is a big change and a big transformation. I see Ashley's nodding, so you'll probably touch on this a little <laughs> bit. But, but it is really important and something that we should all keep in mind when we're talking about you know, what does it mean to have defense cooperation. It means that we can do things together to benefit people in, in both of our countries and in others as well. So that's really quite significant. Um, okay, I'll, I'll talk for a couple minutes about um, economics and trade issues. I don't want to um, take up Diane's time here because she'll have quite a bit to say. Um, but I did want to note certainly um, economic statecraft and a focus on the importance of international economic engagement around the world is something that Secretary Clinton has made a signature initiative. I would encourage everyone here to take a look at the speech she gave in New York um, some months back to give you a sense of the great importance we're placing uh, on American engagement around the world on critical economic issues. Um, with the India story, we, of course, are aware that there are some issues uh, in the relationship. And of course, our businesses come to us on a regular basis um, with concerns that they have. And that would happen in any kind of relationship, of course. Um, I think it's pretty important to keep in mind the transformative picture of the last decade. Again, as Bob mentioned, I want to uh, go over these stats again to make sure everybody has them. Bilateral trade in goods and services, and this is really important, that overall space of goods and services in the U.S.-India relationship is, is substantial, has increased almost fivefold in the last decade. Again, $18 billion in 2001. Ashley will well remember the famous quote of then Ambassador Blackwell when he arrived in India and said, we've got to work on this economic relationship. The trade relationship is flat as a chapati. It's not flat. And anymore. Um, it has uh, reached nearly $90 billion in 2011, and um, by all signs, it looks like we're on track to reach $100 billion uh, in 2012. So again, that's really quite substantial, and I would encourage everybody um, feeling a little bit down about things that they've heard to take a broader look at the relationship and what has changed over the course of the last 10, 12 years. Um, Bob mentioned the uh, OPIC approval for $250 million in financing to India's IDFC, the Infrastructure Development Finance Corporation. 
Um, a lot of what's happening in um, our financing agencies space and what we're doing um, with uh, counterparts and with Indian institutions is focused on infrastructure and clean energy collaboration. Again, that, that is, it's at the nexus of how we create uh, a, a new economy that will benefit both of our peoples in the decades to come. Um, so this, I, I really, D Diane will perhaps talk more about that, but um, it, it's really quite important and very, very different from what we were doing together, even as recently as five years ago. So I just want to make sure that you have that at the top of your minds. Um, Exim, as, as Bob mentioned, is um, has India's its second largest portfolio, uh, with, on track to now become its largest portfolio of financing. Um, it's doing things like, for example, financing $75 million worth of solar power generating projects in India. Uh, Mr. Goyal asked a question about energy security and energy in India, and this is a tangible example of, of some of the things that the U.S. government can do uh, to try to make a difference with uh, Indian partners in creating new opportunities, new energy resources, new uh, ways of generating the kinds of needs, the kinds of energy that India will uh, be able to put on track for um, a sustainable energy future. Um, our trade and development agency, USTDA, um, many of you may not be as familiar with its work. It's a smaller agency doing incredibly valuable things. They do a lot of studies, sort of initial studies. They're also doing some really cool things on smart grids. Um, does everybody know what smart grids are? All right, I see a lot of nods, so I want to explain that smart grids is pretty cool stuff. I mean, it, it's um, sort of at the forefront of dealing with energy transmission and infrastructure, and this is something that we're now working on together with Indian cities. Um, they've also launched a series of, of reverse missions uh, and studies on cold chain modernization, cold chain infrastructure, um, and infrastructure more generally. So again, looking for the tangible impact we can have together with partners in India, you've got some examples right there. I also want you, wanted to mention a little bit about what we are doing with India um, on the development side. As, as Bob mentioned, um, Administrator Raj Shah visited India in December and made a series of announcements, uh, the most important of which was the new um, Innovation the Millennium Alliance that we now have with India and with FICI. Um, what, what has happened with our relationship with India on the assistance side is that it's been transformed into one of partnership, where we are working with India to um, jointly identify innovations that can be deployed in other countries that have specific needs around the world. An example, um, you know, for example, a, a somebody um, has a, a corn husker, a corn cob thing, you know, very low-cost uh, innovation that can be deployed in countries like Africa. Apparently, it's just a sort of round metal piece that you can put over a corn cob, and it can peel the corn kernels off very quickly, very efficiently, uh, and can increase productivity of workers by as much as 30%. So very su substantial, significant change in people's lives at the bottom of the pyramid. So um, this is very different to be working with India as a partner in other countries around the world, and, and, and that is, again, a big transformation from where we were 10 years ago. We have also partnered with India um, on agriculture in three, with three African countries. So we and India are working together with Liberia, Kenya, and Malawi uh, to support training for students from those countries in institutions of higher ed in India that focus on uh, agriculture, agriculture development, technical side of ag. So again, that's something quite new and different that we're doing. Um, that kind of transitions into the knowledge and innovation space, and I'll say a few words about this before I stop, sorry, and turn to Diane. Um, but as Bob mentioned, tomorrow, I, I see Michael Cheatham here, he might want to 
chime in on the science and technology space. Um, tomorrow we'll kick off the Joint Commission's meeting. It will take place over two days, Friday and Monday. We've got a lot happening uh, in the science space overall. We've got a science and technology forum, the S&T Endowment Board, as Bob mentioned. Um, we have the Obama Singh 21st Century Knowledge Initiative. Um, our two governments have together pledged $10 million over the next five years, and that is supporting partnerships and junior faculty development between the U.S. and Indian higher education institutions strengthening teaching, research, and administration. So again, in this knowledge space, you can see that we're both putting substantial resources towards things that we can do together with tangible impact. Um, the first awards uh, of the Knowledge Initiative are going to be announced at the Higher Education Dialogue coming up next week uh, on June 12th. Second, um, again, in the education space, the Fulbright-Nehru program. Everybody knows about the Fulbright program, right? Our program with India is now called the Fulbright-Nehru program, so it's a joint program. Uh, if you are talking with um, people in India, they will call it the Nehru-Fulbright program. It is truly joint now. Uh, <laughs> India and the United States jointly fund this. Um, it has nearly tripled in the last three years with this now new joint funding mechanism. We've got more than 330 students and scholars from the United States and India participating annually, and that makes it the largest Fulbright faculty exchange in the world. So that's pretty impressive. Um, in May 2012, uh, the government of India, um, as Bob mentioned, uh, Administrator Shaw announced the creation of the Millennium Alliance uh, when he was in India in December, and the government of India just last month pledged $5 million towards this Millennium Alliance. So what this will do, USAID, uh, the US, US um, uh, Development Agency has committed $7.7 .7 million to this alliance, and FICI has matched that, um, I'm sorry, yeah, that number is being matched by FICI. And as a consortium, we're looking to try to raise that pot to $50 million in the coming year. So again, this is a public-private partnership that's doing new and different things, and I think you would not have seen something like this a few years ago. A um, couple other things. I did want to talk for a second about energy. We have a formal structure that's uh, working on uh, clean energy advancement, the U.S.-India Partnership to Advance Clean Energy. We call it PACE. Um, in April 2012, we announced the first consortia awardees under the PACE Joint Clean Energy Research and Development Center. Again, this center is um, it, it's going to produce research that will make a difference in the way both of us treat energy, and it will have a long-term impact on both societies and the world. Um, this consortia that won uh, the, award, the award will dedicate efforts towards, quote, the discovery of transformational solutions in areas of building efficiency, solar energy, and advanced biofuels. Mm -hmm. I will also have to beg ignorance of the specifics of, of what that research will entail, but it's a pretty impressive contribution. This consortia uh, effort will involve over 85 government, private, and university participants, and it's a $125 million effort in these three technology areas. Um, I'll mention two other things before I stop um, and turn to one last area. The Indo-U.S. Science and Technology Forum um, ha has facilitated travel of more than 11,000 scientists between the United States and India and established 24 virtual joint research centers. So there's... I have old data, so I'm glad Michael's here. Michael's the executive director of the um, Science and Technology Forum, so I'm sure he has many more details and is, is deeply involved in everything that it does. But that's a pretty impressive track record, and it also means that there's engagement going on across both countries, um, really outside the government, but it's having a tremendous impact on what we're doing together as countries. Um, 
here's an example of something that we think is tremendously impressive. And we happened to learn about this um, in a meeting that Bob had uh, with the president of Caltech. This is really cool. India has recently contributed $100 million to Caltech's 30-meter telescope project on top of Mauna Kea. Is that how you pronounce that? In okay. Hawaii. It is the strongest telescope in the world, bar none. So again, it's an example of engagement in the S&T space. It's the outer limits of discovery of our universe, and this is something that we're doing together. Um, I want to say one last thing before I stop talking. I've gone actually a little bit over, but I, I feel like we've got a lot of exciting things to share with everyone in the run-up to next week. Um, a lot of what we've talked about today, and certainly Bob's speech demonstrated that, uh, really spans a whole range of areas that are, that are underpinned fundamentally by people-to-people -people ties. And at the State Department, a lot of what we do is facilitate people-to-people -people ties in the most prosaic of ways. We put a lot of effort towards visas and facilitating what people can do together. And I just wanted to make sure everybody was aware of the tremendous effort at, at Mission India. Our embassy and our four consulates in India process close to 700,000 applications a year. It's a huge number, actually. It's, it's one of the largest visa processing countries in the world. Um, in FY 2011, more than 663,000 Indians traveled to the U.S. for business and tourism. India is the single largest beneficiary of H-1B and L-1 visas. More than 65% of all H-1B visas and more than 37% of all L-1 visas worldwide are issued to Indian citizens. That's a pretty big deal. During the 2010-2011 academic year, nearly 104,000 Indian students studied in the United States. So I think this gives you a sense of the scale of engagement taking place um, between both countries. Um, I'll stop there. I'm sorry I, I went on a little bit too long. So Thank you, Alyssa. That was great. Uh, Dan, can I give the microphone to you? Certainly. And first of all, thank you so much, Ashley, for including me, and thank you to Carnegie for, for having me here. Um, Alyssa is the perfect demonstration, as uh, as was Bob, to, uh, as a testament to the level of commitment and enthusiasm that the U.S. government has toward the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, President Obama has certainly said that on more than one occasion, and I feel very fortunate that I had four years on the board of directors at the XM Bank working with Alyssa and Bob and to have the opportunity to transition uh, to the council has just been a, a wonderful and seamless transition and an opportunity to continue to work with extraordinary people who are dedicating their lives to service on behalf of all of our citizens, and I would argue all of India's citizens as well. So, so it, it's, it's truly wonderful to, to hear commentary and to share thoughts. Alyssa and I were just meeting together last week. We'll be together a great deal next week <laughs> as, week. as, uh, as we uh, commence a week that will include the strategic dialogue as well as the annual conference that uh, the U.S.-India Business Council holds every year. Um, I'm going to, because we're a little bit into the time here and you've been sitting a very long time, I'm not going to suggest that you stand up and take a seventh <laughs> inning stretch because we just don't have that much time or space. But I'm going to share with you, I'm going to ask you to, to um, do a little bit of response <laughs> to some numbers. When I, when I do a sort of why India trade talk, uh, as I'm invited to speak to groups who are far less knowledgeable of the market than all of the folks who are here, or certainly my esteemed colleagues, I, I used to think I needed to create maybe 20 slides with lots of pictures. Of course, we would all, what, what's the picture we would start with most likely? 
Taj Mahal, you know, in terms of India. But I've actually now gotten to the point where I distill my entire India talk onto a single slide. Now, I'm not putting this slide up because you all are clearly not India 101 people. You're at least 200, 300, 400 in, you know, PhD uh, stature. But I'm going to throw some of these numbers out because the reason that I, that I do this is I think it helps us to sort of once again ground ourselves conceptually as to why we are fascinated by, committed to, and see the extraordinary opportunities that are available uh, when it comes to a strengthening trade relationship between the United States and India. So the first number that I've got is 1.2 billion. Very good, very good. Okay. Uh, everybody's going, whew, it's not going to be that tough a quiz, I guess, if we started with 1.2. Okay, next one, a little more complicated, but I believe most can figure it out or will understand and appreciate it. Okay, so we said 1.2 billion population, uh, 400 million citizens without, no, citizens without electricity. Percent of the population, not percent, but proportion of the population. Then I go to, and this is a number generated by the World Bank. It's two numbers. It's a range. 400,000 to 600,000. I wish I brought some candies or something to, <laughs> T-shirts, something to send out to the audience. That, that, that number, that, this is something to really think about. Between 400 and 600,000 new jobs need to be created every month, every month, to keep up with this extraordinary demographic dividend uh, that is the Indian population since over half are under the age of 18. That is an incredible responsibility for the leadership in India. It is also an extraordinary opportunity when you talk about a growing consumer market. And so that's a number that it needs to be ever-present when either you're thinking about investment in India or you're thinking thoughtfully about some of the people-to-people -people, uh, initiatives that Alyssa highlighted when it comes to U.S.-India relations. Next number, now you all have to get this, and Bob did cite it in his remarks, $1 trillion. Okay. <laughs> Sadan gets a, a special prize. I, I should have brought stars or, you know, something that we could, a report card. Anyway, tell your mother you, get, you got the answer right. Uh, and then lastly, and this is actually a number that our president, Ron Summers, uh, and our uh, prior chairman, Terry McGraw, uh, came up with when they had their executive mission to India in March. But it's a, it's a commitment and a target that the U.S. India Business Council has assumed. That, that number is $500 million, And that represents a commitment that we've made to U.S. investment. Uh, so where we're, as Alyssa pointed out, We'll be probably at 100 million at the end of this year. By 2020, we'd like to see 500 million in terms of trade between the United States and uh, India. Now, you can't answer this one, okay? 2014. Why is that number significant? Very good. Okay. It would have been too easy for you. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the last number that I have on this chart. And the reason that I have this number is simply that, to a certain degree, when you do express frustration, concern, challenges as it relates to regulatory decisions, 
political pressures, uh, basic political you know, dynamic that's taking place on the ground in India right now that we're all reading about and trying to understand and, and trying to influence in some cases. Uh, not unlike ourselves, where we obviously face our national elections this fall, uh, the uh, current coalition government, uh, who have faced a series of setbacks and who, in all candor, are facing some extraordinarily challenging economic factors right now, uh, also ha have their eye on uh, the next set of elections, national elections. Now, of course, there are important state elections that will be coming up uh, in the coming months that will also be indicative. There were some very significant state elections that took place uh, two or three months ago now that were indicative and that in some cases are the reason that uh, we're, we're not seeing as much forward movement on certain uh, market opening opportunities that we clearly would like to see when it comes to the business community. So those are the numbers that I share with folks when I'm talking about India and trying to encapsulate very quickly on a single sheet uh, what it is that we're talking about in terms of today. Uh, the other thing that I just want to share is that when, when Ambassador Nancy Powell gave a briefing to our membership now almost two months ago, it's hard to believe, uh, she spoke almost immediately about the U.S. government's commitment, and again, this was cited in terms of Secretary Clinton's remarks, to trade. That, you know, the way to peace is through trade. The way to prosperity is through trade. And so it's, it's incredibly heartening and, it, in our opinion, clearly very important that our new ambassador, in her early remarks to constituencies in India, has talked about the fact that trade is such an important and integral priority when it comes to the U.S.-India relationship. The fact that there have been good meeting days, this recently this week, that have taken place in Delhi regarding the bilateral investment treaty is extraordinary. I, I, I see the bit as perhaps being the next big thing that followed the civil nuclear agreement. Uh, this, is, this is going to be remarkably helpful in terms of the kinds of uh, getting over some of the, the roadblocks that, that we currently experience. And again, a tangible demonstration of not just a short-term, but a medium and a long-term commitment to this very important relationship. So the bit is extremely exciting and, and uh, energizing to our companies. Uh, the only other thing I'll say, because I want to leave time and I do want to share with you, though, that as you heard all of these comprehensive initiatives that were discussed by Bob and by Alyssa, I, we're right there with you because business is not, while there obviously there's profit, I mean, you know, we're a free market. Uh, we encourage free markets around the world. That's part of the, um, you know, the, the, in, the interest in India as a democratic society. There's no question that we want to encourage free markets. Uh, but we also recognize, and, and as Bob mentioned, I think Alyssa did too, there is an exceptionalism about both of our countries. Uh, it's part of the reason that it needs to be a, a relationship on equal footing because of that exceptionalism, because of the uniqueness of both our countries and our, our, our mutual passion for democracy and open society. Um, but we also need to make sure that as we're looking at the Indian market and understanding those challenges currently right now, a decline in GDP growth, inflationary pressures, dropping rupee, some symptoms that actually harken back to uh, the early 90s 
when India made a number of very critical and important reform decisions, especially when it came to opening markets. Uh, we need to be mindful of that as we look at the market uh, to make sure that what we are talking about, whether it's in the realm of defense, in homeland security, and certainly when you're talking about commerce and getting back to creating those jobs on the ground in India, as well as providing employment opportunity here in the United States, that where we, where we can be most effective is when it's mutually beneficial. And so when we have our annual conference this year, which will be on Tuesday, we're doing something somewhat different in recognition of all the difficulties and complexities that we've been facing. And that is to actually have a dialogue with um, Indian counterparts, with our members, with uh, extremely uh, successful, thoughtful uh, leaders, an Indian leader and, uh, and, a, and a U.S. Uh, business leader. As an example, we have an economic dialogue that will have our current chairman, Ajay Banga, who is the master CEO and MasterCard, uh, excuse me, CEO of MasterCard Worldwide, and we have Adi Godridge on the uh, Indian side. Um, and we actually have four pillars of security. And I know Ashley, just, Ashley mentioned security a few moments ago. And those four pillars, again, touch on everything that Bob and Alyssa and the U.S. government are talking about and the Indian government. It's about food security. It's about energy security. It's about economic security. And it's about national security. And our intent is to have a thoughtful dialogue that we're actually then going to provide to our, our colleagues at the State Department to feed into the strategic dialogue. Uh, and the purpose for that, again, is to look for common ground, look for those mutually beneficial opportunities that will enable us to continue to advance the, the process, to continue to open markets. At the same time, to have candor about certain decisions that have been made uh, where it's frankly counterproductive, in our opinion when it comes to uh, wanting to see increased trade. So whether we're going to talk about taxes and some of the decisions to roll back to have this retrospective tax uh, and the concerns that it has on foreign investment generally, whether it's to talk about every opportunity when it comes to energy, whether it's renewable, whether it's nuclear, uh, recognizing that we could encourage clean coal because coal is still going to be a part of the energy discussion for time to come. Uh, but again, in every area with food, it's all about cold chain. Alyssa's talking about this remarkable technology. We're talking about the opening of the retail sector because not only is that beneficial to global multinational companies, but more importantly, it's an opportunity to reduce food wastage. It's an opportunity to bring pricing down. It's an opportunity to actually expand and enhance the agricultural system. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, is to take that sort of positive view and to come up with ideas and opportunities to jointly work together so that we can continue to see and, frankly, encourage uh, the kind of growth that India desires to get back to that 8.5%, and someday to break that double-digit barrier. Uh, and so that's, what the, that's where we are right now. That's what we're going to be discussing. And we're just so pleased to be able to coordinate so neatly with, uh, with our friends at State. Uh, and we stand as partners with all of you when it comes to these initiatives because it, it, we call it a partnership. Some might say it's a relationship. But over time, 
the potential is there for a true, deep, abiding, long-term, eternal partnership. And that's where we're at. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> that's my idea for Lift of a Driving Dream. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to speak for just a few minutes because I just want to provide a bookend to where we've come in the area of strategic cooperation, particularly defense cooperation, because it's the one area where governments still matter. Mm -hmm. And while we don't want to exaggerate uh, the importance of governments in this relationship, in fact, my own view is that the further away we get from governments to allowing the private sector in both countries, individuals in both countries to do their thing, the better off the relationship between the two will be. But in the area of strategic and defense cooperation, governments matter for all the obvious reasons. I just want to go over uh, what I see as the big changes very, very quickly. When one looks at this relationship 15 or 20 years ago compared to what it is today, I think there, were, there are three big changes that we ought not to lose sight at. The first is that all our disagreements about policy today are essentially ordinary disagreements about policy. What has completely gone are the strong national suspicions that each side had about the motives of the other. Uh, Twenty years ago, uh, this was really what lay at the core, that the United States and India had serious questions about the other's motives with respect to their core national interests. I think today this has disappeared. This doesn't mean that we agree on everything, and in fact, Diane pointed out, as did Bob, there are many areas where there's still work to be done. But no one calls into question the fundamental motives of the other as a partner. And to my mind, this is absolutely fundamental because as people like Tacey and Howie Wolf can testify over 30 years of negotiating this relationship, there have been moments which were extremely touchy because we could not get over these fundamental suspicions that accumulated over 60 years. The second point I want to make is that in the defense and strategic cooperation area, our biggest argument today is what is a strategic partnership? And to my mind, if that is the biggest argument you have, then you are actually in a very good place because there is plenty of room to define that in ways that is both convergent and respectful of each other's uniqueness. Uh, there are many other arguments we could have which would be extremely destructive and counterproductive. But if all our disagreements now about strategic cooperation are what does one expect of the other as a strategic partner, I think we are on a very good wicket, as they say in cricket. Uh, this, again, is a big transformation, and it's not something to, to be lost sight of. The third point I want to make in this arena is that India has, since its independence, had a singular fascination with technology and access to technology as, in a sense, the conduit for measuring the success of all its strategic partnerships. The one thing that has changed in the last 20 years is that India no longer has concerns about the reliability of the United States as a supplier of technology. There may be issues about cost. There may be issues about whether India has access to the best technology they would like on the terms they would like. But the concerns that they had about the US suddenly getting up one fine morning and cutting off the technology tap have essentially disappeared. And so today, to the degree that we can enlarge the opportunities for technology transfer on commercially viable terms, on terms that provide adequate security on both sides, of course, the better off we're going to be. 
but we've taken one big problem off the table, and that is I don't think there are doubts in Delhi anymore about the United States and its ability to sustain this relationship uh, from the perspective of reliability. On defense cooperation per se, there are four dimensions to this cooperation. I'm just going to give you the headlines. Uh, the first is the whole question of the military-to-military -military relationship, what in the trade is called mill-mill. I think this has simply been an unadulterated success story. I mean, the United States exercises with no other countries in the world like it conducts exercises with India. And India comes right at the top of the levels of active military exercises that the United States has. And for a country that is still formally non-aligned, that is still not an alliance partner of the United States. I think this statistic is extremely revealing, that the US Army, the US Navy, the US Air Force go out and do their business with their counterparts, far more with their Indian counterparts than they do with the counterparts, with many other allied counterparts. So this is a very important story. And if you look at the data in terms of you know, subject matter exchanges, in terms of IMET, the number of officers we trained, et cetera, et cetera. The trend lines are all in one direction, and that's, and that's upwards. The second arena is the arena of defense sales, and Alyssa has already spoken to that. I don't want to say very much more. I just want to make two points here. For, for India, defense sales are not simply the purchase of equipment, but always the transfer of technology. It is understandable because India wants to indigenize the technology that it procures and essentially build up its own defense industrial base. The great change has been that India today can now pay for the world's best technologies in a way that was simply inconceivable 20 years ago. You can go to Indians today with items that have huge price tags and India will not blink because economic growth has given it the resources to acquire technologies that previously were simply beyond reach. And that puts the United States in a particularly advantageous position because we do happen to have the best military technology in the world. Unfortunately, it also happens to be on occasion the priciest. But on both counts, we now have an advantage that we did not have before. Now, where India still has to do a lot of work is creating an institutional regime that allows the United States to transfer this technology efficiently. And when I talk of an institutional regime, I'm talking about the nature of India's procurement and the conditions that come attached to India's procurement processes. If India seeks to get the best technology it wants, there will be issues that India will have to address. One will be the character of the offsets, uh, requirements that India imposes. The second, which is very important for the United States, has to do with questions of technology security. Because if the United States transfers the best in the, in the stable, uh, the US government will want assurances that this technology will be held secure. Uh, it's not that India has a particularly egregious problem with respect to technology security. But helping the United States understand what India's technology security regime is would be a great step forward in moving towards higher-end sales of defense equipment in the years to come. The third area is essentially defense industrial cooperation. And this is an arena that we are just beginning to tiptoe into. 
And the two big constraints, again, lie on the Indian side. Uh, the first is, again, getting clarity about technology <coughs> security issues. We've already made great progress, actually, in the last few years. Last July, when uh, Secretary Clinton was in India, we signed the end-user monitoring equipment, uh, agreement, which provided, essentially, a, a regime which allows the United States to essentially make sure that this technology is still used for the purposes that it was intended. But there is a second area which India still has to make some hard decisions on, and that is the question of increasing foreign direct investment in Indian defense. It stands to reason that if U.S. companies are going to be in the business of producing things in India, that they would want to do so through legal and economic instruments where there is appropriate return. Today, U.S. foreign direct investment in India's defense industry is capped to 26 percent. So it does, it does impose extremely onerous burdens, particularly on U.S. companies which are private sector companies, which do not have the deep pocket books of the state, uh, to be able to kind of look to opportunities to invest in India when the control that uh, is provided by just 26% of equity is still extremely modest by, by, by any market standards. And the fourth area, very briefly, is the area of strategic cooperation. And that has to do with the question of not simply what you do in terms of process, but what you do in terms of outcomes. And I think here, too, the record has been really successful beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, Bob Blake already spoke uh, about India's cooperation with the United States and Afghanistan, which is really, a, you know, it's an untold story. Part of it cannot be told because of the sensitivities, uh, you know, it involves the equities of many other countries involved. But what has been done with respect to Afghanistan, what has been done with respect to East Asia, what we potentially can do with respect to maritime security, uh, these are going to be the litmus tests that show the fruits of cooperation on the ground. One other area which, again, takes place outside the public, uh, public uh, realm and outside public attention is the area of intelligence cooperation, which particularly since the LET attacks in Bombay several years ago uh, has really been transformative in terms of the levels of engagement. It's not something that both countries talk about, but again, is extremely important to both countries. So when one looks at the whole range of, of areas uh, that open themselves for productive outcomes where strategic cooperation is concerned, there is a success story here uh, in the bilateral relationship that was unthinkable uh, when this process began 12 years ago. I remember when I was at the embassy from 2001 to 2003, in the early months, one of the big challenges we had was actually convincing U.S. cabinet officials to, to visit India. I mean, part of it was, you know, India was still seen as, in terms of the legacy concerns about the Cold War, the fact that we didn't have a close relationship with this country. We also, unfortunately, ended up fighting a war against al-Qaeda at about the same time. But it was hard to get cabinet-level officials to clean their calendars enough to, to make that long trip, you know, 12 time zones away. Today, it's impressive that in the first six months of the year, you've totaled up five cabinet officials with probably more to come, you know, in the tail end. And this, I think, is, again, just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the one thing you walk away with 
when you look at the extent of the engagement today compared to what it was, say, in 1995, 1998, and 2001, is that the diversity and the detail is simply mind-numbing. I mean, there's simply, I, I have given up on keeping track, except in the issue areas that I'm interested in, simply because there is just much too much happening. And I think if this, uh, if this pace uh, has to be sustained, I suspect the State Department will soon need reinforcements. <laughs> but even more than the State Department, I suspect that bureaucracies and the government of India will need reinforcements. Because I think we are rapidly reaching the point where U.S.-India engagement is becoming so intense that it's actually overwhelming the capacity of our Indian interlocutors. And one of the things that will come out of this relationship I think in the years to come is that if it is to be sustained, the government of India will have to engage in some procedural innovations uh, to help the process continue. Uh, because with their current manpower and with their current procedural systems, they will simply be able to sustain this level of intensity. I'm going to end my remarks on that note because I want to bring you into this conversation. And so we'll follow the same ground rules as before. Raise your hand. I'll recognize you. Introduce yourself if you haven't spoken before. <laughs> and then address your questions to anyone <laughs> you please. Casey, just wait for the microphone because I think they may be recording this. Thanks very much to all three of you. You have uh, permitted us to drink from a fire hose. Uh, and... You've given a really very exciting view of where we are with India. Um, I'm a U.S.-India optimist, but I'm going to push back just a little bit. Uh, it strikes me that many of the things on the long, and I agree, exciting uh, list of engagements that uh, Alyssa talked about um, are things that can proceed and prosper without any new decisions having to be, to be taken by the government. Uh, and certainly without legislation. Um, to me, the U.S.-India relationship is a high-maintenance relationship. And uh, the meetings that you have next week are an opportunity to get the high rollers more deeply engaged and to have all the worker bees serve up the things that they want the high rollers to do. Uh, that certainly was the case when I was in government. If you figured out a better way to do it, I'd love to hear about it. But my question is this. Um, there's really two. First of all, um, are there things that, you, that require a high-level decision in between meetings, and what's the mechanism for galvanizing that? And the second is, I wonder if we have, in an odd way, a kind of ambition gap between ourselves and India. We are very eager to scratch a few things off our long to-do list, like the ones I asked Bob about, uh, and the things that Ashley very delicately suggested, what I have referred to as the defense housekeeping agreements that have been on the agenda for longer than any of us care to remember. When I hear Ambassador Rao talk about where she'd like to see the relationship going, she talks about things like a free trade area which um, is breathtakingly ambitious for somebody who spent four years of her life doing trade, but it certainly is a different kind of ambition. And I wonder how you react to that. Which, who's taking this question? You want, to take, you want to take the first, which is a process question of how we can get decisions made in between action-forcing events like summits and... 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of things that take place that, for whatever reason, uh, don't come to the forefront of conversation. That's part of the reason, I think, that we're trying to showcase for everybody what we do have going on. Um, and I think I mean, it's un an unalloyed positive that we have the kinds of engagement and activities taking place in the bilateral relationship that perhaps don't necessarily require high-level decisions, where we're looking at ways that we can incentivize public-private partnerships. Secretary Clinton has spoken at length about transformational uh, ways of engaging with the, the private sector, with NGOs, um, and with, with ways that we can engage the world in different ways. So I think that's part of what you see happening in the relationship is this transformed way of thinking about what we can be doing together, what our, what our role is as governments to incentivize uh, our citizens to be doing things together with each other. So I guess I would answer it in, in, in that way. Um, as to whether there's a, a better way to look for process, I mean, certainly reinforcements would always be nice. Um, at State, we actually have just gone through a process of uh, uh, splitting our offices that used to be the India-South Asia office. We now have an office of Indian Affairs, which is exciting because it allows us to focus full-time within one office uh, on India issues. And we have another office now that will be focused on um, the other countries of the region, so Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and Maldives. And that provides uh, really a kind of focus and concentration. So that, I think, is a kind of procedural factor that will make a big difference. Dan, do you want to? Uh, you know, the other, uh, I mean, it's always difficult. Moving government is, as you well know, I mean, it's at a snail's pace. That's the very nature of, of the way governments operate. Sometimes that's to the good. Sometimes it's, it's not so great. Uh, most of the time, I think, you know, slow deliberative, deliberative decision-making actually ends up being the right way. One, one other, you know, sort of proactive body, is, as Bob mentioned, is the CEO forum. And they're not necessarily as constrained to the same kinds of, of uh, you know, time frames, and, and there's more agility there. And so to the extent that we can make, you know, highest and best use of these CEOs on both the Indian and the U.S. side, uh, as they look for specific initiatives that can result into tangible action, uh, that, that's a group that I think needs our support and encouragement and uh, whatever thoughts and ideas we have to feed into them, I know they'd appreciate. And they'll be convening, I think, sometime a month or two after uh, next week's strategic dialogue. So that'd be another opportunity. I'll just take a quick crack at the ambitions gap. There is one. But I see it as less a gap as in a... We have different conceptions of what this partnership entails. And that has to be reconciled in the process of doing. I mean, it's not, it's, not a theor it's not simply a theoretical problem. That will have to be worked out issue by issue. And the problem that we have is we both come from different places. The United States has always lived in a world where there have been two categories of interlocutors. You were either an adversary or you were a treaty ally. And it was very easy to navigate between these two because we had clear, clear rules for each. Now we're dealing with India. That is a friend, definitely not an adversary, but not an ally. And everything that we have in our institutional, in our ideational architecture, is designed to deal with these two categories. And so India is the anomaly, and therefore its expectations of this relationship will be very different. Uh, from the ways in which we think about India. And 
we can deal with this by having a seminar and say, you know, can we come up with a new architecture, new conceptual solution? I, I'm not opposed to it. But I think the more practical way is to take the issues you know, that are concrete and where we do have uh, divergent viewpoints and try and figure out a practical agenda for cooperation. And then what one labels that, you know, we will leave to the historians and the scholars and people who populate buildings like this. How are you? <coughs> Thank you. I'm Howard Schaefer, Georgetown University. Uh, one of the remarkable transformations I've noticed in the years I've been following U.S.-Indian relations is the great change in congressional attitudes towards uh, India, uh, which when I was on the India desk uh, soon after Theodore Roosevelt charged up San Juan Hill, <laughs> uh, it was very negative. That's changed. I was wondering uh, how you were bringing Congress, individual congressmen, uh, into uh, the strategic dialogue that you're planning to have and what your longer-range efforts are uh, to encourage uh, even more positive congressional views of India. Well, I think we've got tremendous congressional engagement with India. We have CODELs uh, visiting on a regular basis, staff DELs going out to support uh, their members. Uh, so, I mean, I'd, I'd say that that's a very robust level of engagement happening already. Um, everybody's heard this before, but it's, of course, also quite exciting that there's bipartisan consensus on um, the importance of the U.S.-India relationship. So we certainly spent a lot of time briefing staffers, Assistant Secretary Blake briefs members. Um, they come to us with questions. We're happy to engage and answer. Um, there's a, a very high degree of engagement, I'd say. Um, the strategic dialogue is executive branch to executive branch, so it doesn't involve uh, members of our legislative branch. So, I mean, it's, if that was your question, is that? Presumably. Yeah. Well, sure, of course, happy to. But the, the actual uh, dialogue itself is, is G to G. And, and many of the Indian delegates will be going up to the Hill oh, to yeah. meet with members, you know, privately anyway. So. And I think the largest caucus is actually the India caucus. Uh, and in terms of educating um, uh, House and Senate members, you know, the two-way trade, as, as you see more investment from Indian concerns in the United States, is a very positive story that is sometimes overlooked when you talk about India, either within the context of visas or, you know, some of the, the, um, some of the you know, um, colloquial terms that people will use in terms of, of uh, threats to job creation here, et cetera. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that we have a number of significant Indian companies who are making deep investments here in the United States, and they are creating jobs. And we need to do, probably do more to make sure that members of Congress are aware of the, benefit, the direct benefits that they're seeing in their districts, in their states, as a result of Indian investment into the United States. I'm very aware that we have gone beyond our scheduled time. And so what I want to do is take maybe two more interventions and then formally adjourn these proceedings. And then you're welcome if <laughs> Alyssa and Diane have the time to come up and speak to them privately. But let me give you Sadhana a chance. Uh, thank you. Sadhana Dume from the American Enterprise Institute. My question is for you, Ashley. And coming back to your the anecdote about your time at the embassy 10 years ago when it was really difficult to get a cabinet-level appointment to 
come visit to now when you have five in the first six months. I guess one of the big things that's happened in the intervening 10 years has been that India suddenly arrived on the global economic map. And there's sort of many years of, of close to, close to double-digit growth transformed the way in which not only how Indians saw themselves, but also how the world began to see India. Now, this comes to something that Diane mentioned, and it was mentioned earlier, that economic growth really has slowed quite dramatically. We're down from close to 10% to closer to 5%. So my question is this. Has this relationship built enough capital for this to now be the new normal, where there are going to be regular visits at this level or so on? Or is there, and so are there other things that have contributed to this beyond the economic story? And what happens if the economic story ceases to be a standout economic story, becomes a middling or muddling economic story? Are there other things that are driving this new sustained higher level of, 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 of engagement? Or would we see, perhaps not a return to 2001, but a return to, uh, to, to, to a point in between? Let me answer that in two ways. One is one needs to have a story about why there is a slowing down in growth. And I think part of that story has to do with what is a global slowdown in any case. The second has to do with domestic politics and the peculiar paralysis that afflicts this government at this moment in time. Uh, between those two, I think one can make a plausible case that there are still structural factors in the Indian growth story that are still relatively robust. And that even if India you know, kind of plateaus out at, say, 6% growth, it will still, assuming it can be sustained, it will still be a market of great significance for the United States. I mean, if you can think of a growth story of a country that can pile up 6% growth for 20 years or 30 years, that is going to open all sorts of opportunities. And so as long as one does not reach the conclusion that the structural character of the Indian economy is such that there is trouble writ large, right? If that is your conclusion, then I can see exactly the outcome that you, that you fear, which is India begins to slow down. The rest of the world begins to lose interest in India for all sorts of reasons. But I think at this point, I'm not ready to go there yet. Now, the key is that there are decisions that Indians can make to avoid coming to that point. And I think my own understanding of Indian domestic politics tells me that they will make those decisions when they begin to flirt with a crisis. Mm -hmm. And I have always thought that crises in India are wonderful things. And so if there is a, a crisis to come, may it come soon, and may it be intense. Because I think both of those things coming together force governments out of their inactivity. But when I pull back and say, you know, apart from the politics of the day, apart from the you know, problems caused by global uh, economic slowdown, are the fundamentals in relatively good shape? I think I'm, I'm more optimistic on that count. I think the fundamentals are in relatively good shape. And therefore, India will pull out of this. So I don't foresee us ever going back to you know, the 2001 world, where if you could get one cabinet official a year, you count yourself lucky. I don't see us going. I don't see us going in that direction. 
I'll take one more and then we'll. This gentleman, please. Thank you. I'm Jim Berger from Washington Trade Daily. It's sort of related to that last point, but it's more specific. Uh, is the relationship as, as strong now to allow, for instance, both sides in the, in the bilateral investment treaty negotiations or the treaty itself to allow both sides to really uh, – for, well, to allow the United States to really press on the, the whole issue of foreign investment in multi-product uh, uh, In multi-brand uh, retail? Okay. Um, I actually – when you speak with Indian officials, uh, almost to a person, they feel that there is uh, an, an interim opportunity perhaps – that the opening of um, FDI and multi-brand retail could happen sooner rather than later. It does not require a parliamentary action. So this can be a decision that needs, obviously needs the support within the coalition, and that was the problem back in November when it was announced and then it, it was withdrawn. But the expectation uh, from those within the Indian government at high levels who are optimistic that, they, that this coalition can, kill, can still get something done uh, is that multi-brand retail could come back. So that, that's what we're hearing. We're hopeful. And again, it, it, it's a win-win from all perspectives. So we, we really are encouraging uh, the uh, leadership to continue to pursue. If I may just add one point to that. The great change that has occurred in multi-brand retail is that for the first time within the bureaucracy of the government of India, there is a clear understanding that this is imperative for sustained economic growth. Five years ago, the view was that retail is something that is only for the upper classes. It's basically optional. It has no effects with respect to the core issues of poverty alleviation and national income growth. I think now there is a clear understanding across the board, including in the old holdouts, that multi-brand retail is actually a catalyst because it solves all the issues relating to rigidities of the factors of production. And one has to be hopeful mm -hmm. that this government's commitment to getting this done in this calendar year, which is what they have said on many occasions, is something that they will, that they will implement. And as Diane pointed out, if the government can focus on doing what it needs to outside of parliament, because there is so much mm -hmm. that is simply within the purview of regulation, which is, comes under the authority of the executive branch, rather than having to go to parliament when there is no need to, when there's no legislative or uh, impact involving the laws. You know, a lot of this would move, uh, would move much faster than it has. So on that note, we keep our <laughs> fingers crossed and hope that we will see some good news in the months ahead. Well, I want to thank all of you, you know, the intrepid ones who survived this two-hour marathon. But before you go, I also want to thank in a very special way both Alyssa and Diane for spending this time with us and for giving us a tutorial on where the U.S.-India relationship is. I look forward to seeing all of you at some point again back thank here you. at Carnegie. Thank you. Thank you.